0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Jean. Can I just say something about tonight's uh, service? As we start this new series called Slow Down, You're Moving Too Fast. Uh, If if you feel that you're just constantly in a hurry, and just always rushing around and sort of running to keep up, then maybe tonight might be helpful. Uh, It is going to be a little bit different. Uh, It's a sort of thematic series. We're going to be looking at the importance of just slowing down and taking some time out and resting. Uh, we've just four Sunday nights together in the summer, so it sort of lends itself to do a short series like this. So as I say, if you suffer from hurry sickness, it might be good to come along this evening at 7 o'clock. Okay, in our, uh, in our series, Fresh Air and Freedom, we've reached chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's page 1170 in the Bibles and the Pews. But as you look that up, let me ask you three questions. What is the goal of Christian discipleship? What is our hope for each other? And what is my prayer for you? Three questions. Let me suggest two answers. A spirit-led life. A Christ-centred life. Existence, And that, in a, in a nutshell, is exactly what Paul longed for in the Christian believers in Galatia. And he also longs for that, in a sense, in anyone else's life who happens to pick up his letter and read it and take it seriously, which I hope is most of us. And in the next couple of weeks, we are going to explore or investigate what a spirit-led life actually looks like. But for this morning, amongst a few other things we're going to reflect on, we're going to look at the importance of a Christ-centred existence. A Christ-centred existence. Last Sunday, we looked at how Paul took the Galatian believers on a journey. A journey that spanned 2,000 years from Abraham to Moses and then to Jesus. And we described it as a kind of spiritual pilgrimage. That the believers in that region... The Judaizers or the false teachers and we, two millennia later, need to navigate in our thinking. It's a journey we all must take, in a sense, if we are going to appreciate and understand and embrace a whole Bible gospel. One that runs from the start to the end. It's a journey that takes us back to Abraham and to that promise that God said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all people, so that includes us, through you, It's a journey that then takes us to Moses and to the law, which we said last week was given to expose sin. The law was given so that we would know what sin is. The law was not a bad thing. It was actually a God thing. It didn't annul or it didn't invalidate the promise. In fact, if anything, it made it more necessary, more urgent. And then it's a journey that takes us to Christ, in whom we experience The promises. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, it is in Christ that we find ourselves. It's in Christ we locate ourselves. It's in Christ that we discover, and we looked at this last week, if you were, our true identity. Who am I? Well, we discover that in Christ. And a key aspect of this is the realization. That I am a child of God. A child of God. And for the Galatian Christians, this was revolutionary teaching. Because Paul was helping them to see: listen guys, you're no longer slaves held captive by the law. You're actually sons and daughters who have been set free in Christ. And in many ways that just blew their minds. And it really annoyed and upset these Judaizers, these false teachers. And in chapter 4, what Paul is doing is he's continuing to speak into this issue. He's continuing to to, uh, draw certain parallels between what life was like under the law and then contrast that with what life is like now that they are in Christ. So let's stand together and we're going to read the first 11 verses of Galatians chapter 4. Please stand with me. What I am saying is that as long as heirs are under age, they are no different from slaves, although they own the whole estate. They are subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by their fathers. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but you are God's children. And since you are his children, he has made you his heirs. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather, now that you are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Take a seat. See, Paul, Paul starts here by saying that being under the law is like being an heir of this major estate, but you're still a kid. You have all this inheritance coming to you. One day it is going to be yours. It's yours by a promise, but for now, as a minor. You can't enjoy the experience. In fact, you're subject to these guardians, to these custodians, to these trustees. They're the ones who are calling the shots. They're in control. And so in a very real sense, you're no different to a slave. And that's the way it's going to be, says Paul, until a future date set by your dad. And then in verse 3, notice how Paul starts. And that's why, if you've got a new living translation at least, this is the way it starts. And that's the way it was with us. And so what Paul's trying to say is that we are heirs of this incredible inheritance. This incredible promise. God is going to bless us. It is ours by a promise. But for a period of time, we were underage. We couldn't fully experience it. The law became, and we thought about this last week, the law became your guardian and your custodian. You're held captive, therefore, by the law. You're slaves to it. But what Paul then says is, that's not going to last forever. In fact, it didn't last forever. Because according to verse 4, when the time had fully come. In other words... Something new has taken place that dramatically changes everything. God has done something, is actually what Paul says. In fact, God has done two things. And we discover these two key and life-altering things in verses 4 and 6. Have a look at them. Verse 4, God sent his son. Verse 6, God sent the spirit of his son. But then notice how Paul says that God actually sent his son for these two reasons. To redeem and to adopt. Jesus came to redeem us. In other words, God sent his son to rescue you. Deliberate you. To set you free. In terms of how did that actually happen? How has Christ set us free? Well, Paul's already touched on this in his letter. Right at the very beginning he said that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, in order to rescue us. And then later on in chapter 3, he says that Christ redeemed us, how? By becoming a curse for us in hanging on a tree. The cross, in a sense, has said it all. It's central to our faith. It's central to our liberty. And as we've been stressing, therefore we must keep it at the forefront of our minds. So God has sent his son to rescue us. That we might receive, Paul says, adoption. And therefore we move from this position of being slaves to the privilege of being sons and daughters of the living God. And because that is who we are, because we are now children of God, that's our primary identity. Because we are adopted, God has sent the spirit of His son not only into this world, but notice the little phrase Paul uses and it's key. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And so from deep within, don't entirely know how this happens, but from deep within comes the cry, Abba, Father. That is the language of intimacy. It's the language of personal relationship. It's the language of children, sons and daughters, not the language of slaves. And then in verses 7 and 8, in large, bold print, Paul declares, listen, you are God's children. Not only are you God's children, you're also heirs. And you know God. One stage you didn't. Now you do. Or as he also says, you're known by God intimately in this close, personal relationship. And then he asks the question, so why in all the world... Why in all the world would you want to turn back? Why do you want to buy into the teaching of these Judaizers? These guys that are trying to actually say to you that you need Jesus plus something else. You don't. Christ has redeemed you, you've been adopted. You're a child of God. You don't need to return to your old ways. Why would you choose, he says, all this formal external religion? says in verse 10, why do you observe special days, months, seasons, years? Why do all that when you've come so far in a new direction? When you have experienced incredible freedom, why would you want to go back to slavery? And so Paul fears for the Galatians here in chapter 4. And that's why he says in verse 11, Listen, have I wasted my effort on you? You're in danger of losing your perspective, losing your bearings, but probably more importantly, you're in danger of losing your identity. And that can happen to us. We can lose our way, We can relive like people who are captive, and we can forget who we are. And it is possible. And I know, and you know, lots of Christians who have reverted to an old way of life, or who have lost a sense of that identity. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to offer you some advice on how you actually live, survive, and enjoy the Christian life. And it's relatively straightforward at one level. Remember who we are and remember what we are. Because as I said last week, knowing who we are dictates how we live. Knowing who we are dictates how we live. And right thinking about who we are determines right living. So in the midst of day-to-day life, in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of the hustle and bustle, in the midst of all the hurrying about, all the rushing around, how do you actually remember who you are? Like practically. How do you go about doing that? It's all very well, stand up at the front of a church and say to a congregation, remember who you are. But how do we actually do that today? Tomorrow? Tuesday? During the rest of the week? It's a good question. Well for me, the key to this is the absolute importance and necessity of constantly reminding ourselves who we are and what we are in Christ. Because we so easily forget. And there are so many competing voices that want to distort our thinking and mess with our minds and tell us different things about who we are. You're no good. You're rubbish. You're not worth an awful lot. You're not as good as that person. You're not as together as her. You're not as gifted as him. And all these voices constantly competing with that inner voice that says, No, hold on a minute. This is who you are. In Christ. And how do we keep reminding ourselves who we are? Well, to answer that question, let me share a thought or echo a thought from John Stott. One of the great purposes of daily Bible reading, meditation and prayer is just this. To get ourselves correctly orientated. To remember who and what we are. And, you know, I've said this from this pulpit so many times, and I repeat it this morning, and I repeat it for my own benefit, I can assure you. But we need to consistently engage and connect with our Father via the spiritual disciplines, via the holy habits of the Christian faith. And Bible reading and meditation and prayer are three of the core habits. And whenever we neglect And I hope this doesn't sound legalistic. I hope this doesn't sound almost as if I'm running against what I've been saying all along during this series. But whenever we neglect these, whenever they become erratic in our lives, we risk and we endanger our spiritual health. When time with God, and yes, ideally on a daily basis, and as I say, I'm speaking into my own life here, I can assure you. But whenever we neglect time with God, ideally on a daily basis, then our faith tends to go walk about. We lose our bearings. We lose our perspective. We lose a sense of our identity. And we start listening to all these competing voices because we're not rooting ourselves in God's word and what it says to us about who we are in Christ. It's through reading God's word. It's through engaging with it, meditating on it, That we discover and rediscover and need to constantly rediscover who and what we are. This is who I am in Christ. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I am united with the Lord and I'm one with him in spirit. I am part of Christ's body. I am chosen. I'm redeemed and forgiven. I'm complete in Christ. I'm free from condemnation. I'm secure in the love of God. Nothing can separate us from that love. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I'm confident that God, who has started a work in me, will see it through to completion. I am a citizen of heaven, I'm born of God. I'm a branch of the true vine, a channel of his life. I am God's temple. I am a new creation. I'm a minister of reconciliation for God. I'm seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship. There's a New Living Translation puts it, I am God's work of art. Is that how you see yourself? I am salt, I am light, I am a saint. It's an incredible list. It's an identity affirming list. And as we read God's word, we remind ourselves of the truth of who we are in Christ. Let me ask you a question. How does Paul say we are transformed? In another letter. How does Paul say we are transformed? By what? someone by the renewing of our minds in other words it's by getting our thinking right because right thinking about who we are determines right living listen you think you're no good you think you're rubbish i tend to find that's how people then live but you see if we can begin to embrace who we really are in christ it's not of ourselves, we need to get this in perspective. It's who we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, and only because we are in Christ, all of this is true of us. And if we can see ourselves in this light, then I would suggest to you that it will transform how we actually live our lives. On a day-to-day basis. So many voices will compete to tell you something different. The question is, are you consistently reminding yourself... As you engage with God's word, meditate on God's word, and pray to your Father in heaven, are you constantly and consistently reminding yourself who you are in Christ? I have that, all that out on a sheet. There's ten of them here. Uh, So if anybody wants those, I have a friend who uh, laminated this, stuck it up in the shower, and every morning before they go out to work, they just read down through that list. And just remind themselves, you know, this is who I am in Christ. I don't need to listen to anybody else or anything else. So if anybody wants a copy to laminate and stick in the shower, speak to me afterwards. Let's move on, okay? And let's pick up this up again at verse 12. Uh, Last week I said that uh, Galatians chapter 3, and and maybe even that opening section of Galatians chapter 4, is really quite technical, and it is. Paul the intellectual, in a sense, has been writing so far. But in this next section, from verses 12 right up to 20, we get a chance to hear and meet and discover more about Paul the pastor. Paul's heart gets exposed and it rises to the surface. His deep concern, his genuine love and compassion for the Galatian Christians comes to the fore. And he pleads with them. And not only does he plead with them, but he uncovers his deep desire for them. So change of position again make sure you're still awake still with me let's stand and read from verses 12 to 20 I plead with you brothers and sisters become like me for I became like you you have done me no wrong as you know it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you even though my illness was a trial to you you did not treat me with contempt or scorn instead you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God As if I were Christ Jesus himself, what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, that's the Judaizers, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to, be, and to be so always, not just when I am with you, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. I will say, Paul's opening remark there in, in verse twelve is a wee bit arrogant. Or at least it comes across a bit arrogant. I plead with you, says Paul, become like me. I wonder could you ever actually say that to someone. Look, just just become like me. Was Paul not a bit full of himself? It's a fair question to ask when you read a comment like that. Two things. The first is that what Paul meant by that was to become like him in knowing and in enjoying the true freedom that's found in Christ. What Paul was saying is, listen, I don't want you to buy into the false and warped teaching of these Judaizers. I want you to become like me in knowing that you are free in Christ. Secondly, look at how verse 12 ends. It starts, become like me, it ends... For I became like you. You see, Paul isn't aloof. He isn't detached. He isn't remote. Paul identified with the Galatian Christians. He put himself in their place. He walked in their shoes. And this resonates with Paul's comments to the Corinthians. Whenever he writes there, To the Jews, I became a Jew. To win the Jews. Or I became like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Although I myself am not under the law. So as to win those who are under the law, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I became like you. There is a principle here for us. It's a far-reaching principle that's actually embedded into these words that says, in our engagement with people, in our desire to connect with and reach people with the gospel, our end game, here's the end game, here's our hope that they will become like us. Redeemed and adopted children of God. That's the end game. The means to that end is that we might become like them. It's the means to the end. In other words, we identify with them. We become all things to all people that we might save some. That's a whole sermon in itself. That's something we need to wrestle with and work out. What does it actually mean for me to become all things to all people? How do I become like others? Paul goes on in verse 14 to remind the Galatians how, listen, you welcomed me at first. Even though, as a result of some unidentified illness, nobody's quite sure what it was, Paul has been a bit of a burden on them. In fact, it says his illness was a real trial to them. But nevertheless, even in spite of the fact that this illness was a real child to them, they welcomed Paul, he says, as if he was an angel. In other words, they welcomed him like a messenger sent directly from God. And as if he were Jesus Christ himself. Which is an amazing thing to say. But that's how they welcomed him. And so you can imagine that if that was how they welcomed him, sorry, and embraced him, why is it now According to verse 16, it seems that Paul's become their enemy. So Paul's confused. Paul's probably disappointed. He's maybe even distraught. And why has Paul become their enemy, it seems? Because they can't handle the truth. They're clearly struggling with Paul's message. Yes, it was revolutionary. But they were really struggling to take it on board. And I think it's interesting that sometimes or often when people don't like the message, they go for the jugular of the messenger. Speaking the truth, even when we speak the truth in love, is not always popular. And some of you have known that. And some of you are right there at the moment. Speaking the truth to people who once embraced you, welcomed you, But now because you've got some hard things to say into their lives, it seems as if you've become their enemy. Can I encourage you to continue to speak the truth? Yes, in love, but continue to speak the truth, even when people can't handle it. Paul then points out how these Judaizers, these false teachers, they're trying to drive a wedge between the people and the apostle. They want to win the people over. That's their aim and they want to do it and in the process of doing it they want to alienate Paul and the reason or the hidden agenda is they want these people they want the Galatian believers to actually join their group to buy into their thinking to join their gang because it's all about them it's all about their popularity they want people to follow them and become like them and Paul's attitude to the Galatians is totally different he cares about them He wants what's best for them. And that's obvious from verse 19. Because what he says is, listen. My dear children. Plus he's also like a mum to them. Which is a beautiful image. He's like a mum to them. Who's been through the pains of childbirth. In bringing them into life. And it almost feels, says Paul, like I'm here again. It almost feels like you need to be reborn. That you need to rediscover that fresh air and freedom that you once enjoyed. But look as we close. Look at Paul's desire. Look at his hope. Look at his reason for this letter. Here's Paul's motive for doing what he does. Writing what he writes. See, he longs to see Christ formed in them. Until Christ is formed in you, is what he says. Until you take the shape of Christ, is how the New English Bible puts it. Or until Christ's life becomes visible in your lives. And that takes me back to where I started. Because what is my prayer for you? What is our hope for each other? What is the goal of the Christian life? It's a Christ-centered existence. What does that look like? A Christ-centered existence is where Christ is being formed in us. That we are taking the shape of Christ in the choices that we make, in the attitudes that we hold, in the words that we speak, in the forgiveness that we offer, in the love we express, in the joy we reflect, in the hope we embrace, in the self-control we demonstrate. Paul longs for their lives and for for Christ's life to become visible in their lives. And that is my hope and my prayer for Windsor Baptist. That here you would come and you would find a community of people whose lives are increasingly taking the shape of Christ's. That we would be known as a group of people who walked as Christ walked. That we would be a group of people who have, are bearing a sharper and crisper image of Jesus as we are being conformed and transformed into his likeness if you like that's my vision for Windsor Baptist that in this place you would encounter meet, engage with people in whom Christ is being formed and so as you leave here this morning I hope and I pray that you will remember who you are in Christ and that you will long for and you will allow Christ to be formed in you, See you.